You know, if you're one given to angels and all that kind of stuff, they, they don't really get that song like you and I get it. And uh, it's always nice to be able to, you know, to, to know that we're going to step into heaven one day, you know, in, our, in an arena that, or at least presence with Jesus for a time where the angels dwell. And uh, yeah, I can imagine it's going to be quite overwhelming, you know, and, and it's going to be good to have a, a little bit of something that's ours, you know, that we possess, that's familiar, that uh, even the angels want to know and understand. Um, I remember feeling a little like that when I went to seminary, you know, the, you're in this new setting, there's all these brilliant people around, you know. And uh, what I had to contribute was I loved to play basketball because I was a PE major. And uh, so eventually we'd get around to that. And I, you know, I felt like I had to, you know, get these chubby seminary guys out to play basketball. It was good for them, right? I had something to contribute there at seminary. And uh, so that was a good feeling. I think heaven will be a little like that for us. Well, you know, what are you going to tell all these brilliant angels? who are awfully mighty, flying around, doing amazing things. And we'll be able to say something like, well, let me tell you about the cross. And uh, they'll just sort of stop and be very inquisitive about that. So that's a joy. Today we're going to focus uh, on John chapter 12. I, I, I'm aware that in your Sunday program uh, we had published, or I had uh, I had uh, encouraged people that we were going to be in uh, Psalm 52. Um, was led of the Lord this morning. I trust it's of the Lord. Away from that this morning early. So I was thinking about the day. And uh, so we'll save that for another time. Amen. And uh, I hope if Pastor Tim's watching, I, all apologies to the staff who work hard at getting those things in the, in the program. I don't, I don't like to do that very much. Um, I don't think I've ever done that, as a matter of fact. Um, felt it would be appropriate given the day, Palm Sunday, and uh, wanting to look at the Word of God in relationship to Palm Sunday in John 12. And as I uh, began to think about John 12 in relationship to Palm Sunday, uh, this gospel account, uh, unlike, well, not necessarily unlike, but uh, has certainly a, a sharpened edge in relationship to what John is trying to do. In other words, in John chapter 12, and really as he spends a good portion of his gospel dealing with the last week of Jesus' life, there's just a chunk of all of the book of John dedicated beginning at chapter 12. We know that, you know, this goes all the way into the 20s. So there's well over eight chapters given to this last week in Jesus' life. We're not going to look at all of it this morning. We're just going to focus on, really, the beginning of the week. And uh, in studying this out and in, in really reflecting on it, uh, I came upon this idea and this truth that Jesus' unique identity, Jesus' unique identity creates the paradox called Palm Sunday. Jesus' unique identity creates the paradox of Palm Sunday. You know, Palm Sunday is one of those traditions uh, that the church has taken up, and frankly, the church doesn't quite know what to do on Palm Sunday. 
whatever the church does, it's not doing exactly what those who were the original participants of Palm Sunday, they're not doing what they were doing. Can we say that? They were crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, which we know means what? Save now! Get rid of these terrible Roman conquerors in our life and save us now. So whatever the church is doing, we're not doing that. So whatever the church seeks to celebrate, it doesn't celebrate what those original participants were celebrating. Instead, I believe what the church celebrates is the the unique identity of the person of Jesus Christ. And it's in Palm Sunday that the microscope now in Jesus' ministry gets switched up to its highest power. And we begin to see very clearly the thoughts and intentions of the hearts of those who, who sort of lived around the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it seems like in John chapter 12, as sort of a prologue to the Passion Week, Palm Sunday gives us uh, uh, several different, some protagonists, some antagonists, but all of them around the hero of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we really get a window into the human heart, into the motivations of those who would be around Jesus. And we're going to take a look at those this morning. The first one that we're presented with here in John chapter 12 is the one we want to embrace. Can I just say that? Of all of those who surrounded the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we are confronted, or we are brought to the feet of Jesus literally by the person of Mary. Uh, let's read uh, verses 1 through 3, John chapter 12. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was. Who, oh, by the way, Jesus had raised from the dead. So get this. Okay, this is the opening day. This is, this is sort of the, this is Palm Sunday. This is, and, and here we have, you know, if you graded miracles like we grade eggs, you know, there's a, a grade A egg, and there's a B, I suppose. But every time on a carton of eggs, it says grade A eggs. This is a grade A miracle. To have sitting at your table, bodily raised from the dead, Lazarus, who Jesus, in, in, in a... In a in a word of power that, that, that brings us back to creation itself, Lazarus, come forth. And he comes forth. And, uh, and there he is, sits. There's all these people in the room around him. There's a soul that's been resurrected from the dead. And Jesus is there. These are those professing disciples. These who are probably more intimately acquainted with Jesus and perhaps uh, some of us who are members of Grace Church of Menor would would reflect the character traits of these people. Some good, some bad. But all of us see souls here. Your own life has been changed dramatically 
by the unique identity of the person, of the paradox of the unique identity of the person of Jesus Christ. And some of you who have recently given testimony to that in our baptismal tank, you serve as our Lazaruses. You are the people who are freshly on our mind, who Jesus has spiritually raised from the dead, who guaranteeing that you will physically raise from the dead. So, so you sit among us, you Lazaruses, and we are of your kind and ilk, we hope. But Mary... Oh, we were reading the text, weren't we? Sorry, got a little... <laughs> Whom Jesus had raised from the dead, verse 2, so that they may... So they made him a supper there, and Mary was serving. That's not surprising to us, is it? Martha, sorry, thank you, Donna, keep me on track. Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him, with Jesus. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Mary, and I, I entitle Mary as the learner, lover, and worshiper. She's the one that when we are confronted with the unique person of the Lord Jesus Christ, we want to replicate. We want to be Mary. She saw things for what they truly were. In modern-day parlances, she got it. She got it. There sitting before her was her brother, who formerly had been dead for three days in the grave. This was not lost on Mary. <laughs> this was not lost on Mary at all. Uh, we could argue it may have been lost a little on Martha. We wouldn't disparage Martha. Her gifting may have been to serve, and certainly somebody had to deal with the household realities. But Lazarus sitting there in the presence of her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, it was not lost on her at all. And the appropriate response of her life, when it's not lost on you, we take what we value, things that are very costly to us. For her, it was this perfume. Uh, we're told uh, very expensive. Uh, years worth of income to purchase this. It had monetary value. It had, it, it was, it was, uh, something that Jesus would refer to as she not only getting the fact that Lazarus is there, but she seemed to have an understanding of what the week would hold for Jesus. And Jesus turns this and, and, and mentions even in, in our passages, he defends her, uh, that she is keeping it for the day of her, his burial. He is literally embalming him, if you will. She, she seemed to get it. It's very costly. And and, and she begins at the appropriate place for learners, lovers, and worshipers, and that is at the very feet of Jesus. This is, this is where learners, lovers, and worshipers exist. They're at the feet of Jesus. They're humbly overwhelmed. They're saddened by the fact that Jesus' feet are dirtied and soiled in this sin-cursed world. They're at his feet. They're at his feet. And they're doing the unthinkable. They are, they are willing to be a laughingstock. They are willing to do what would 
in other situations appear to be undignified. But they throw all that to the wind and they worship. And she literally picks up her long flowing hair and wipes the dirt off Jesus' feet. Learner, lover, and worshiper. She gets it. She gets it. And nobody can escape. The fragrance fills the whole house, probably very powerfully and poignantly, almost in a, in a disturbing way. The influence of her worship and her learner, lover, worshiper heart just fills and influences everyone and everything around her. So you're an intelligent church. You can make applications. As we think of the paradox, of the, uh, the, the, the unique identity of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, are you somebody who, who, is, who is sort of, you know, you got Jesus when you were saved, and, and you still reflect on that moment? And you appreciate that. Um, but as you've grown on in the Lord, your worship hasn't become any more influential than it was the day you were born again. There's nothing more costly, more, more demonstrable of your love for the Lord Jesus Christ than you had when you were born again. In fact, sadly, most of us remember when we were born again and we say things, oh, how fresh it was then and how I've kind of lost that freshness. You know, here Mary challenges us to continue to get it to continue to reflect on the unique nature of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly in the company of God's people. As we look around us, as we see souls, and we remember that our task is souls, our bottom line is souls. And we see the Lazaruses among us. And hopefully we're moved whatever is most costly to you, your time, talents, and resources, that we joyfully commit those things to him. So Mary, the learner, lover, and worshiper, we're confronted with another professing disciple. We would argue that Mary not only professed, but she possessed and uh, we're confronted with another one one who stands on the complete other end of the spectrum but one who is as familiar with Jesus as Mary herself was one who was in the presence of the resurrected Lazarus himself and that is Judas and if Mary is the learner lover and worshiper 
I quantify Judas Iscariot as the professed follower, but with an agenda. The professed follower, but with an agenda. He's got some other things that he's interested in. Learning, loving, and worshiping are good for the likes of Mary. But that's sort of like a, you know, a, a kindergarten level sort of Christianity. He has some superior interests, sadly. And seeing uh, this and smelling the effect of this worship, Judas Iscariot, verse number four, one of his disciples, who was intending to portray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii? That's 300 days labor. It's, it's almost a year's worth of income. And then John gives us a little window into his soul, who was intending to betray him, said, why was this perfume uh, not sold for 300 denarii to the poor people? Now, he said this not because he was concerned about poor people, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore, because Jesus knows the hearts of all men. You know, what are the things you would have said at that moment? Yeah, I would have said, see you later, Jewess. Take a hike. No, Jesus, Judas, uh, Jesus, I believe, having compassion yet, and Judas's time not yet having come, Jesus, knowing all things in the hearts of men and women, said, let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of, day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. And if there's one thing the church knows, we know that truth. We don't have Jesus yet. We long for the person and the body and the touch and the feel and the voice. We long to, like Mary, worship at his feet, possess costly things and bring them joyfully before him. He's not with us. Judas didn't get that. He had Jesus with him all the time. Obviously took him for granted. Obviously had his own agenda. But my friends, is that true of some of us? <clears throat> Judas questioned the extravagance of Mary. And thereby disputing the very divinity of Jesus himself. I mean, that's powerful. Jesus is Lord and Master. He too saw Lazarus sitting at the table. He saw him. And it was completely lost on him. Lost. There he was. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords spoke his life back into existence. And Judas dare deny his divinity by calling into question the extravagance of Mary's worship. How arrogant is that? How arrogant is that? How arrogant is it in my heart? 
when I tip in the balance toward the heart of Judas, things are lost on me in that moment. You, the, the company of God's elect and salvation, what God's doing here at Grace and our community, we, get, we lose sight of that when we get chippy. And you can define chippy the way you want. If you're anything like me, I get chippy. They lost sight. These are two extreme poles. Jesus is silently... He didn't, we're not told what Jesus did with Mary, other than just receive it because it's his due. And he defends it because it's his due. I mean, we appreciate Mary and all that, but this is what is his due. Jesus' response, you do not always have me. Judas, there's something even more important than your agenda. It is to worship me. You need to examine your intentions and actions and recognize that eternity is measured on my terms and agendas, not your own. So we have Mary, the learner, lover, and worshiper. We have Judas, the professed follower with an agenda. And if we drop down to verse number 16, we have, we have the disciples. These are, we would assume, uh, John and his cohorts, cohorts uh, the disciples that we are familiar with, probably. Um, in verse 16, these things his disciples did not understand at first. And, and what, is, what, what did they not understand? Well, they didn't understand the whole triumphal entry thing. They didn't get it. Uh, they, they were confused by the triumphal entry. Um, and this idea of Jesus finding a young donkey sitting on it. Uh, later on, <clears throat> they get it. Jesus, but when Jesus was glorified, when he rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, then they remembered that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things to him. So the disciples, these are followers who remember when Jesus is glorified. Followers who remember when Jesus is glorified. Um, and what aids their memory is what is written. What is written? It's the report of Isaiah of what would be true of the first advent of the Messiah. So these were disciples of Jesus who were trying to figure out the times. They were trying to understand the advents of, of, of well, uh, Jesus had come. They were a little confused. They were expecting probably what the people were expecting a little bit, that Jesus would throw off Roman oppression. But they had heard Jesus. They understood that he had to die. They had heard all of these things. They were a little bit confused. And, and the confusion came to clarity when Jesus was glorified when Jesus was glorified. Unlike Mary, who got it immediately, as she saw Lazarus, and Judas, who had his own agenda, this group of followers found clarity in Jesus' glorification. You know, if we could draw some parallels and analogies to you and to me. 
if at times we're lost in the spirit of Judas. We want to take note that it's when the Lord Jesus Christ is glorified back in our lives that clarity comes and rushes back in. So the question is, do you want to be this disciple? Well, many of us simply are this disciple. This, I think, is sort of the, the warp and woof of the progressively growing saint who is in the sound of my voice. They live much of their life befuddled. <laughs> Not much. Maybe that's an overbearing thing. But if you're a thinking disciple of Jesus, there are things that are befuddling. And that's okay. But know this, that the clarifying moments in your life are the moments when Jesus is glorified. Certainly, specifically the event here of his bodily resurrection from the dead. And by analogy for you and I who work through befuddlement on a daily basis, remember that vindication is coming. Remember, you will get to sit down with Jesus and have a one-on-one -on -one talk with him. He has a tongue, he has teeth, he has lips, and he has skin. And he's there to talk with you. Amen. And it will come. And he can't wait for it. Amen. He's in heaven preparing a place. So let not your heart be troubled. Amen. Believe in God. Believe also in me, Jesus says. I have dwelling places that I'm preparing for you. And if I go and prepare, I will come again and receive you unto myself. So befuddled disciple, hang in there. I'm coming. And we're going to talk. And I have all answers. I have the ability to reach into your heart with the balm that you so long for. I will do the work that I have begun in you. Amen. He's coming. Church, it'll be all right. It'll be all right. It'll be all right. So these are sort of the three close followers of Jesus. Mary, Judas, and the disciples. I, I would challenge you to to open up your own heart this morning and to see who you are. Uh, I know who I long to be. I know who I probably am. And I know, know and, and I, there, there's somebody there who I hope I'm not. <laughs> and, uh, and Jesus deals with all three of them. All three of them have the same witness, right? They all had Jesus. They all had Lazarus. They all had heard his word. But their responses were different. Mary got it. I mean, she really got it. Judas followed but had an agenda. The disciples, clarity came little by little. 
Our text goes on then in the closing moments here. Talk about those then who are sort of following Jesus from afar. Following Jesus from afar. I would call these the religious onlookers. In verses 9 through 15, in verse 29, John identifies these as the large crowd. The large crowd. This is the crowd. These were onlookers who were intellectually curious with political aspirations. So what they saw in Jesus was somebody who could give them what they wanted. If We could boil it out to that very simple reality. They could get what they wanted from Jesus. This is sort of a Judas that is a little less informed, <laughs> if we can put it that way. Um, they were very respectful. They laid palm branches down underneath the hoofs of the colt that Jesus was riding on Palm Sunday. However, Jesus, and especially Lazarus, as you read this content, context, is nothing more than an intellectual curiosity. It's sort of like Ripley's Believe It or Not. You know? Their own personal intellect served as the God of their life. They cried out, Hosanna, save now. These were the most emotional people of the whole story. <laughs> they, they knew what they want, and they wanted it now. You know? Disciples, as you're working with potential disciples, or as you're, as you're combing through the question of the person's profession of faith, off time, not off times, but occasionally you may find thinking, boy, you know, this, this person is looking at Jesus as sort of a rabbit's foot, as somebody who can kind of give them what they want. And there's no intellectual humility. There's no, there's no humbling to the lordship of Jesus Christ in the way they think, in the way they feel, in the way they act. Jesus is nothing more than a talisman. He's nothing more than a good luck charm. He's, he's nothing more than the latest and greatest thing to make sense out of their crazed, confused life. And he's added to the stock of good luck charms. We want to work on that disciple, or that potential disciple of Jesus Christ. They need to understand this. So we had the onlookers who are intellectually curious with political aspirations. Verse 19, we, we, we always have the Pharisees around, right? They're never happy. These are the religious onlookers who are jealous of Jesus' influence. Jesus has no words for the religiously jealous. Uh, the silence of Jesus here is fearfully deafening. Jesus had already dealt with these religious leaders. And in no uncertain terms, these were, of all of Jesus' enemies, or potentially enemies, these were those who were specifically identified as such. They do not even hear his sayings, his words, what he's trying to communicate. They don't even hear that. And so there's nothing to discuss. 
So you have the onlookers who are intellectually curious, the religious onlookers who are jealous. And then in verse 20 to 26, almost sort of, sort of foreshadowing the local New Testament church, you have these Greeks. John out of nowhere brings up the Greeks. Uh, now there were some Greeks among those who were going to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began asking him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered these Greeks, saying, Look, the hour has come to, for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. Speaking probably of his own body, this wheat metaphor, and probably of what the gospel would require of those who would put their faith and trust in Jesus alone. There must be death to self-interests. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world hates it in the sense of what comes out of the bellies and appetites and self-centered thoughts. When you come to Jesus Christ, those things must be put to death. And there must be the longing and the desire to believe Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection, and that he has all of the values, thoughts, and things to do. He knows eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Here we have the nature of true saving faith, that there is no third category of carnality that exists forever. There may be moments of carnality, but they're only moments. They're short-lived. Those who, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father, the Father will honor him. So these Greeks, I call them the seekers who wish to see Jesus. For these people, Jesus has a word of truly, truly, Please, please hear what I'm about to say. Please get it. Don't miss the paradoxical wheat analogy. Death, Jesus' death bears fruit unto a life for all who trust in him. For the true disciple, the principle is similar. To believe or follow me means taking all who you are in this world, all of your former identity outside of Jesus Christ, and just losing it. And where do you lose it? You lose it in the sayings and the commands of Jesus Christ. And Jesus assures him, he says, don't be surprised. I'm not going to take you where I haven't gone already myself. To do such incurs honor of the Father. And then the final group we have here in verse 42 and 43, these are the rulers. Uh, There's kind of tucked in here. Uh, nevertheless, uh, Many who wouldn't believe him, nevertheless, um, uh, many even of the rulers did believe in him. Sort of, I think. I'm not sure exactly what John's trying to say here. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For what? They loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. This is almost, uh, uh, this whole paragraph, or this whole chapter is like uh, uh, the sower and the seed, if you are familiar with that parable. They love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. So all of these six characters, what does Jesus finally do in verse 44? 
He goes, ah! <laughs> he cries out. He cries out. And he essentially says, I'm going to just, uh, just, just wind this up um, to the end of the chapter. The first thing he says, I am God. The second thing he says, I have come to illuminate your desperate spiritual darkness. You must realize you are in desperate spiritual darkness. The third thing he says is, I do this for everyone, and I do this for anyone. Verses 46 and 47. Then he says in verse 47, my goal in coming to the world is not to judge, but to save the world. And then in verse 47, he adds that, but to be saved, you must hear my sayings and keep them. And then he gives us the rationale. Because I am God, my sayings are not up for peer review and debate. To reject my sayings, unlike any other man who has ever lived, is to reject me. And even though I've come to save you, your rejection of my sayings will function as your judge. My sayings are the only words, and they are the final word concerning eternal life. Therefore, my sayings themselves, not me, will judge you. And because I am God, I say only what God says. Only God can command eternal life. I am God, and I speak exactly what God speaks. So even though Jesus' intentions are to save you, if you reject his sayings, those sayings will judge you. So this is what Jesus cries out on Palm Sunday. How's that for a happy message? It is a happy message. He takes six different responses and they're all here. They're gathered up by John, and they're placed here in the face of Lazarus. And the emotion of Palm Sunday, you're either Mary, Judas, you're a confused, befuddled disciple, you're a crowd. Who are you? Where are you? Are you a ruler? Are you afraid? The believer? Jesus is, takes all of the, you know, it's sort of the confusion. And now as he comes into this, his Passion Week, it's all about clarity. It's all about clarity. The paradox of Palm Sunday 
is clarified in the unique person of Jesus Christ. What will you do with Jesus? I would implore you to trust him as your personal Lord and Savior, to recognize your bankrupt, your bankrupt, desperate spiritual condition. And you say, well, pastor, that's harsh. And I, and I understand that. It was harsh when I heard it and it washed over my soul the first time. But I assure you, friend, I assure you, run to the arms of Jesus. Because regardless of how you feel about that reality, doesn't change it one bit. You are in a desperate spiritual condition. God has said this. He, he said it to save you from it. But if you reject him, those very words will judge you in eternity. So we would implore you to come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are labor and heavy laden. I will give my, you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, he says. Stop learning of yourself. You know way too much about yourself. Learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You're not finding that to be the case as you know yourself. It just won't happen. That only happens as you know Jesus. Amen. So we'd encourage you to come to Jesus. Um, we love you. Jesus loves you. Jesus wants to save you. Amen. And he's come and died on the cross for anyone and everyone who would receive him as Lord and Savior. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Palm Sunday. And uh, Jesus, we, we reckon your unique, unique authority. And we see ourselves in, in the characters of these uh, people that John puts forward on Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday truly is a paradox. It's ironic. And it's all around who you are. For those who don't get who you are, their responses are out of line they're out of touch, Jesus. They, they don't follow. But, oh, Jesus, for those who get it, whether it's Mary who gets it in a full extent, or whether it's those disciples and possibly those rulers, we thank you that you love them as well. And that as we glorify you in our life, there's growing clarity, Lord Jesus. So we thank you for that. Uh, Every head bowed and eye closed. I, I, I'm compelled just to, once again, encourage you this morning, if you're here without having put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, um, I would encourage you to take a look again at John chapter 12. Mm -hmm. we would encourage you as well to consider the unique person of Jesus Christ who himself as God has all authority given unto him for all eternity. And I would encourage you right now, if, if, if your heart is saying, wow, you know, I see myself in some of the characters 
that are not the characters that know and love Jesus as Jesus intends them to know and love him. I see that he sets the terms. He's God. I'm not. He knows eternal life. I don't. And maybe for the first time you recognize, oh, Jesus sets the terms. And if that's you this morning, I would encourage you just to tell that to Jesus. Tell him, Jesus, I think I see it now. You had to die, and you did die for my sin. And Jesus, believing is not sort of just adding you to one of many ideas, but understanding that believing is giving you my life. as your authority deserves, just like Mary did. I may not have spike dart and have you here to wipe your feet, but that same spirit, that's what I need, and I want that, and I, and I cry out to you, Jesus, for, that you would save my soul and be Lord in my life. Tell Jesus those things in your own words. and Know that if you mean it with your whole heart, Jesus has saved you. That's why he came. Rejoice in that. You know, if you prayed that prayer this morning or you, you, your heart is filled like that, would you mind just slipping up your hand just so I could pray for you if you're out there? I know Pastor Mike will be out. He'd love to talk to you. I'll be out there, Pastor Steve. If a friend of yours brought you they would love to talk to you more about these things. You know, even if you've been in the church for years, friend, now's not the time to fear. Don't be like those rulers who feared the Pharisees. Get it right. Don't fear us. Don't fear whoever. Just get it right. Father, we thank you for our time together. We love you, Jesus, more than we can express, and we can't wait to see you. And uh, I pray that you'd help us to continue to be the learners, lovers, and worshipers. Uh, we want to be just like Mary. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.